Thank you for listening, but please be advised that I am not an expert on any of the topics I cover on the show. Please do your own skeptical inquiry and let me know when I may have said something in error. Also, I tend to let the F-bombs drop when excited or frustrated, so listener discretion is advised. Hello, I'm Ruby, and this is episode 32 of Living Through Extinction. I'm about to complete and upload episode 30, and am really hoping the volume issue is figured out. My apologies for you having to turn your volume all the way up for episode 29. It was my first crack at finishing up a file with GarageBand, but I think I know what to do different this time around. If something goes wrong again, I think I'm just going to move on to the next free audio program on my list, which is Audacity, and hope for better luck with that one. Skeptical podcasts are a great way to ease into the learning of skeptical practices. Today I would like to suggest a long-running monthly skepticism podcast that's put out from right here in Winnipeg, Manitoba. L-U-E-E, or Life, the Universe, and Everything Else, does a skeptical analysis of a new topic every month. The four hosts have been doing this together for a long time and they do a great job. While you will certainly learn something through listening to this podcast, it is not stuffy in any way. The hosts seem to be having fun and genuinely enjoy each other's company, so there are a lot of laughs to be had while learning with them. Go check out L-U-E-E. That's Life, the Universe, and Everything Else. And learn how to be skeptical, damn it! There is possibly some good environmental news ahead. While there are other sources for this North American study, I took my information for this topic from ScienceDaily.com. When I post the show notes, I'll put a direct citation link in the comments for anyone who wants to go read it for themselves. Switchgrass is a hardy perennial plant with very deep roots. It grows all over North America, is something used to feed cattle, and is actually considered an important component of the tall grass prairie habitats of my own homeland in Central North America. In some areas of the continent, switchgrass can grow up to 12 feet high. The good news that's coming out of switchgrass? It's based around biofuels. Switchgrass is a great biofuel option. The University of Texas has been working on this for more than 10 years, and some real success may be just around the corner. We need biofuel sources. They are a major part of combating climate change. The problem in North America is that we have massive weather ranges from north to south and from central to east and west. It would be ideal to have one plant that grows quickly, takes few resources, and can be grown to its fullest potential anywhere in the continent. So what they have been studying are the genetic differences between switchgrass plants that have been thriving in different locations. Which varieties can we get the most out of in super dry areas? Which varieties can we get the most out of in super cold areas? That kind of thing. The University of Texas, Hudson Alpha Institute for Biotechnology, the U.S. Department of Energy, and others were all a part of this study, which published the genome analysis of switchgrass in the journal Nature. They have identified the genetic differences between plant groups which have evolved to thrive in climates of different locations. This is a big step because with this knowledge, we can perfect high-yield crops for switchgrass wherever they are needed. It brings us a bit closer to a cheap, widely available plant source for energy and fuel. 
I'm sure it's not perfect. Nothing ever is. But it sounds like one of the best options I've read about so far, and I look forward to following the progress on this one. Coyotes are native to Middle America, but they have spread to almost everywhere in the U.S. Some time ago, they began moving into the suburbs around Chicago. Coyotes are very territorial, so as their numbers grow, they spread out quite a bit. At one time, it was thought that there were parts of the city where they would never go because they are too busy, too populated, but that has been proven incorrect. Due to the suburbs reaching a point where there was no room left, younger ones have begun to claim territories in the downtown area. There are an estimated 2,000 coyotes living in metropolitan Chicago with around 9 million people. These urban coyotes have altered their natural behaviors in order to thrive among us. While they are not nocturnal in the wild, urban ones have become nocturnal. They find small spaces to curl up and sleep during the day, often just a few feet from where people are walking by. They've learned our roads and our sidewalks and are rarely seen or hit despite high traffic areas. And they have much larger territories than their suburban cousins do. The data has come from critter cams and GPS collars. While it was thought that they would be eating human trash and possibly hunting pets, this is not what has been observed. There are 91 video clips of them hunting, eating, and hiding. And it turns out their diet is mainly made up of songbirds and rabbits. And not one critter cam has shown any signs of them hunting dogs or cats. That doesn't mean it has never happened, but it doesn't appear to be a problem at this time. Scientists continue to monitor these urban coyotes, so there will be updates in the future. Research topic for this episode is commercial meats. Meat is the fourth largest contributor to greenhouse gases with transport emissions, farm equipment emissions, methane emissions, and more. It is responsible for land and water degradation, acid rain, biodiversity loss, squirrel reef degradation, deforestation, and in many cases, animal suffering on top of it all. South America is losing its forests to it. The Midwest is losing its prairie and grasslands to it. Livestock overall takes away from those things that clean the air and replaces them with things that pollute it. Here in North America, we are used to excess in many things. Meat is definitely one of them. On average, we eat way more meat than is actually necessary to remain strong and healthy. In Canada, the meat industry is one of the largest sectors of the Canadian economy. It has an influence on social issues and politics in a similar way as coal does in specific parts of the U.S. And across North America are thousands of examples of unsustainable mass-scale factory farms. Livestock farming has huge impacts in all sorts of areas. Red meat in particular, such as beef and lamb, put out 10 to 40 times the amount of greenhouse gas emissions as veggies and grains. Meat is probably the most inefficient food we consume. Yet about 30% of our planet's surface is being used for livestock. Before I even get into the animal itself, I'd like to remind everyone that all these meat animals have to be fed. Millions of acres of land and so much water is used just to grow food for our food. Corn, soybean meal, and other grains are grown specifically for livestock. Hundreds of miles of rainforest are burned and cut every year in South America to be converted into crop and grazing land. And at one point, 1,250 miles of Brazilian rainforest was lost in just a five-month period to livestock and crops to feed said livestock. 
In the U.S., we have environmental damage as a result of them using 167 million pounds of pesticides and 17 billion pounds of nitrogen fertilizer every year on their livestock crops. And this generates nitrous oxide. And it is unfortunately not uncommon to use larger quantities than the plants can even use. So where does the excess go? You got it! It runs off into the waterways. It's more than just an environmental issue, too. The need for all this grain for livestock drives up the price of grain, and that will have an effect on anyone who eats and is on any kind of budget. That would be me. If all the grain going to livestock went to people instead, we would be able to feed millions, if not billions of people with it. Manure is another issue all of its own. Some farms spray it on the fields, some store it in open lagoons. When wet weather comes to town, these lagoons overflow and again, runoff goes into our waterways. A lot of antibiotics and bacteria are released in this way. Regardless of where it is, if it's outside, the manure will begin to decompose. And that process releases methane, ammonia, carbon dioxide. And I read in one place that a factory farm can produce as much sewer waste as a small city. Damn! I also have to mention antibiotics, of course. When animals are kept in crowded conditions and fed grain rather than grass, they become more susceptible to disease. The choice of grain is made in order to speed the animal's growth and to increase its weight. This choice also means that high dosages of antibiotics have to be regularly used on these livestock. 80%, 80% of all antibiotics are consumed by the livestock industry. And of course, this is a major contributor to antibiotic resistance issues, something that is killing 23,000 Americans every year. And that number is climbing. More water is required for a pound of beef than a pound of most veggies. More fuel is used in the production of a pound of beef than a pound of grain or produce. And as I mentioned earlier, the meat industry is the fourth largest contributor to our greenhouse gas problems. On our part, I guess education will be key. Knowing which meats have the largest impacts is a good start. CBC.ca posted a chart of protein foods and their negative impacts on the environment. From least worst to most worst, we have lentils, then beans and tofu, then eggs, tuna, chicken, turkey, pork, beef, and lamb. In Canada, more than 6 million residents restrict their meat intake, and one-third of Canadians say they are thinking about doing so in the next six months. Their reasons range. Personal health for some, animal welfare for others, cost and convenience are also considerations. The Canada Food Guide, while not outright condemning meats, does now suggest to choose protein foods that come from plants more often than meats if possible. What we can do with the meat that we do buy is choose local grass-fed product. Cows who graze use less water overall and are more resistant to bacteria, requiring less antibiotics. And buying local, of course, means a lot less travel emissions than buying something from thousands of miles away. Oh, and know your food labels and certificates. There are specific ones that will guarantee certain aspects of the product. Some people think that the price of meat should reflect its impact on the environment. Like a tax, I guess? Man, if something like that went into place, I don't know if I would be able to afford to eat meat anymore. According to that list from CBC that I read earlier, beef and lamb would most definitely be too expensive for my household. But just cutting back on one's meat intake can actually go a long way. As I mentioned at the top of this segment, humans do not need nearly as much meat as we consume. The recommended amount is 80 to 90 grams per day. 
And on average, we in North America gobble up 200 to 250 grams per day. So there is a lot of room for cutting back. It's an area where we could save millions of lives as well as trillions of dollars in healthcare costs too. Meat hurts the heart, y'all. Do it for environmental reasons. Do it for economic reasons. Do it for your own personal health reasons. If we really are consuming well over twice what we actually require, then it shouldn't be that difficult for most of us to make a change in this part of our lives. For today's smile, I want to send you to smithsonianmag.com to watch some videos posted of animals on February 1st of this year. The videos were released by the National Zoo and Conservation Biology Institute and are completely adorable. Some of the zoo's residents recently got to experience snow for the first time. About 2.5 inches fell. The released videos are of giant pandas, red pandas, Andean bears, and other animals playing in the snow. With the zoo closed due to the pandemic, nobody got to go see them live, but it's wonderful that they released these clips. Just try to watch pandas sliding in the snow and not smile. Maybe save them for a day when you're feeling low. I know these videos brought my mood up when I came across them. Seeing happy animals gives me joy. That's all I have for episode 32. Thank you for listening, and may your health and sanity be replenished daily for all of 2021. Thank you to Jason Martin for composing the intro-outro of the show, and thank you to Kathy Rayner and Paul Palmer for their musical contributions on the violin and guitar. I hope you will join me in two weeks for episode 33 of Living Through Extinction.